Can I help you, ma'am? Oh, sorry I'm late, but after all those scotches, I had to piss like a racehorse. Mm. Daniel? Yeah? Why in God's name are you dressed like a woman? Well... I'd like you to meet the host of your new show. Host? Euphigenia Doubtfire, dear. I specialize in the education and entertainment of children. Surprise! Hello! (laughs) (laughs) And welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast hosted by three fetching young ladies who take you back to the 80s and 90s. One scrumptious piece of pop culture at a time, dear. Oh, yes. (laughs) There's no other way to start this episode. (laughs) But I was also not prepared. I was prepared, but I wasn't prepared. <laughs> I'm Chris. You're- Whoa, Chris, what are you doing here? <laughs> Rips the wig off. It's me. Wait, we didn't just replace our host with a much older, much heavier woman? How could you lie to us? <laughs> I'm Chris, your podcast host, most likely to hip-hop, bebop, dance till you drop, and yo-yo, make a wicked cup of cocoa. <laughs> I'm Seth Pearson, the host most likely to get diarrhea forever. (laughs) And I'm Becky, the podcast host most likely to reek of taste. (laughs) (laughs) I've often said that about you. (laughs) For this episode of the podcast, Seth and I spent four hours in makeup, putting together meticulous disguises to masquerade as the opposite sex, and then we remembered it was an audio podcast, so you'll just have to take our word for it, that we are in spirit. And I'm wearing pants. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we've all made sacrifices. We get it, Becky. Today we're looking at 1993's smash hit comedy, Mrs. Doubtfire, starring Robin Williams and makeup. (laughs) (laughs) And we're examining the overall phenomenon of straight men dressing as women to get laughs in movies. Now that our attitudes about gender have shifted, is this premise still funny? Was it ever funny? Some people thought it was funny, obviously, but looking back, is it problematic? (laughs) If you have to ask the question, it probably is. So as an opening question, I wanted to ask you guys what your experience with gender was as a kid. To what degree do you think you followed, you know, gender norms or were you aware of them? And did you ever have experience like acting or dressing as the opposite sex? I've never dressed as a man. (laughs) Like I guess put a mustache on. I remember my mom would say that I never wanted to wear anything except dresses and skirts when I was little. So you. But it's not. Yeah, that's why it's weird that I was like that at some point, mm-hmm. where I was very, very girly, apparently. Becky's wearing a lace dress right now. <laughs> Told you, I'm wearing pants. She's wearing a doily outfit with pants. I feel like once puberty hit and I was, like, gaining weight, and then you just don't feel very, like, feminine, even if when your boobs come in, like, you're just not, like, in the hottest outfits, like midriffs and, like, things that, like, the girly girls are wearing. So maybe that's when I strayed away from probably being very girly. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, society tells girls, like, you have to dress like this for boys to be interested in you, and that's where your worth comes from. (laughs) So if you don't fit in a certain mold or dress a certain way or put makeup on, then no one will like you. (laughs) Thankfully, I think 
times are just a little different. Obviously, that's not all gone away, but I feel like it's it is much different. And also, it feels nice to be an adult. Where I remember in junior high, and I think a lot of this has to do with being insecure. But I would like have my mini backpack on, not just my school backpack, but like my mini backpack, and had all my makeup in it. And before and after class, I would check my makeup and make sure I looked okay, and everything was like in its place. And now, like I don't give a shit. <laughs> like I remember I bought makeup at Sephora like last December and I haven't bought anything since and a lot of that was like I was pregnant this past year and I just like could not give a shit I also wasn't going into my office as much like that's pretty much the only time I put on makeup is if I'm going into the office and I know I'll see like my boss or there'll be a meeting and I want to look presentable or it's like you know a party that somebody's throwing and I know somebody's going to take pictures or people are going to get dressed up Mm -hmm. I could not give a shit about makeup or wearing heels or like any of that anymore at all. (laughs) And it's very freeing (laughs) to not care. I still see some people that are like older women that still like they can't leave the house without putting makeup on and I feel like feels bad saying that I feel like that's kind of sad but I I don't want to be like that Mm -hmm. when I'm older. I don't want to be like that right now. So happily I feel like at least for women the gender roles are being a little bit less strict than they were when I was growing up and I felt like I needed to wear this makeup I needed to wear a certain amount of clothes like or a certain type of clothes so that I have You did need to wear a certain amount of clothes <laughs> to school <laughs> legally speaking But yeah I've never dressed like a guy for anything I mean that's not a thing and I'm sure we'll talk about that. Why? Why isn't that a thing? <laughs> that's that's interesting, Becky. Um, obviously, we're all exposed to gender from birth. We are assigned a like biological gender, and then we are immediately kind of socially conditioned with gender. Well, I mean, sorry to cut in, but just like that's the most important thing about a baby is that like everyone wants to know the sex and they bring the pink or the blue stuff for the most part. And, and it's sometimes just like, they have gender reveal parties <laughs> yeah. and shoot a balloon yeah. and cause a massive forest fire. <laughs> And so, yeah, it's weird how baked in that is. Even before you are born, like, your gender identity is kind of, like, the primary thing that's shaping, like, what gifts you get and this and that. Yeah, and not to, like, again, not to, like, interrupt again, but when I found out I was having a girl, it was one of the happiest moments of my life. And I'm not 100% why. Like, what can I do with a girl that I couldn't do with a boy? And I'm sure I would love a son, you know, um, but like for some reason that was important to me and it's hard to under, it's hard to know why, like just because I wanted to put her in dresses. Cause even I'm not really that person that that's not like the most important thing. So I, I feel like even a person that I feel like I'm very open to gender and, you know, I don't like all these pink things like, or just pink for my daughter, but I think it's just so baked into you your whole life that even, like it's just in your subconscious of you have these gender um, restrictions or these expectations. Yeah, Becky, I'm so glad that you kind of addressed when you were talking about your childhood, like the ways that you were taught to perform gender and what was expected of you. Mm -hmm. Because growing up as a kid who is obviously like, I I have a feminine voice in a lot of ways, and I have mannerisms that are not traditionally like very hetero-masculine, I was very in ways that were both subtle and really, really, really overt, socialized into acting more butch. And I I noticed it coming from things like 
relatives would say, things that kids at school would say, things that religious leaders, like at my church, I grew up Presbyterian, like my Sunday school teachers would mention things, just basically intimating that like there was something wrong with me if I talked a certain way and carried myself the way that I am. (laughs) So I learned to perform gender from basically from birth, kind of as a survival mechanism. And that also extended to the way that I dress and the clothes that I choose to wear. And I know, I'm sure it applies to me in some ways now, but it's also like now I'm in the same column as you, Becky, in terms of just absolutely not giving a fuck. But that's also an extension of privilege in a lot of ways, because I've been lucky enough to be able to move to a place in Los Angeles. I can afford to not give a fuck and usually not have it get in the way of me living my life. But it's also been pretty amazing to be able to live here because I've been able to consciously recognize the ways that I felt I had to limit myself in the place where I grew up, where I lived like the first 18 years of my life. Because yeah, I, I did feel I kind of had to perform gender. And did you ever, like, have the urge to, like, dress in, like, female clothing or do that just, like... Because I feel like there are a lot of kids who end up, like, doing that as just sort of a experiment along the way. If they don't feel like they totally fit a gender norm, they, like, are like, whoa, maybe I'll try this other thing just, you know, to see how it feels. So I loved superheroes growing up and I loved like Halloween and dressing in Halloween costumes, especially as superheroes and just like characters and even villains sometimes from things I liked. So I dressed as Batman and I dressed as Superman and all of, all of the mans. Uh, <laughs> but I also liked to dress up as Storm from X-Men. <laughs> and like mm-hmm. when I was like playing X-Men and like playing superheroes with other people, I would sometimes be Storm. And I've also like it to reference other episodes like in Nintendo games, I would almost always play as female characters. Mm-hmm. Well, Princess Peach was the best. Uh, well, that's in that's objectively true and even like Chun-Li in Street Fighter was obviously the best. And while the way that that I carry myself when I'm like being myself has never been like super masculine. I've never gotten too much of a kick out of like dressing and performing femininity and like dressing as a woman. There's never really been anything particularly thrilling about it to me. And like I did drag in college because we went to a Rocky Horror Picture Show screening. What were uh, you? Were you Janet or Columbia? No, I, no, I was just a fucking mess. <laughs> I had that's I, my favorite character. <laughs> yeah, I dyed I had dyed my hair blue, and uh, it was it was terrible. It was genuinely terrible. It was like fun to do once, but it was not really anything I got a thrill out of. Yeah, my story is actually really similar to yours. I remember like playing Masters of the Universe when I was like four or five, because I remember it was like the, my first neighborhood. And like sometimes I would be She-Ra, and it just didn't seem like that big of a deal. Like Love kids it. weren't like... Love it. I don't know, kids didn't care, you know, when you're like four. It just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know like sometimes I would play Barbies with my sister, you know, she would want to play something and it'd be like, okay, like I knew it was something that was like frowned upon, like boys weren't supposed to play Barbies. And I like had this like feeling like, ooh, I shouldn't even like this at all. Like this should be something I'm, I hate doing, but I like was actually like kind of into it. And looking back on it, I think it was just because like Barbies were realistic people 
And and they had all these really cool accessories, <laughs> and they had all these fun locations that they went to. <laughs> no, that actually, like, that, I don't think that had anything to do with it. it was, I think I could just play, like, real people and real scenarios, which is the kind of stuff that I'm kind of drawn to in, like, writing now and, and film now is just, like, playing out character drama instead of boy stuff is always like monsters and things smashing and war and explosions which i liked playing too but like sometimes i just wanted a you know a human drama (laughs) and also it's tough to have an emotional moment with a ninja turtle right (laughs) and as a writer i mean i think you need to be able to kind of write both genders to be able to be a good writer just i feel like i'm very used to kind of slipping into like both trains of thought and I just I feel like in nature like I'm a pretty like gender neutral person and I've been aware of gender norms for a long time and also like Seth felt kind of ostracized by not always fitting into them especially like not really being into sports as I was a kid like that was every other guy is into it I'm like why don't I care about this so I just never saw like the big deal with gender I still find it kind of ridiculous, like, when people, like, kind of go over the top with, like, this is for girls and that's for boys and, like... Oh, a few years ago, there was a Bic pen that was for ladies. A what? <laughs> like, you know, the the company Bic? Oh, uh-huh. They had a pen that was marketed for ladies, you <laughs> yeah. know, because ladies can't use just a normal pen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ladies, your empty bird bones will snap if you attempt to grasp any man's writing utensil. <laughs> That's why you reach for big ladies. Yeah. Big hers. <laughs> I mean, there's like, there's the pink tax about like how women's products are always more money, even though it's the exact same product that mm. a man would use. Like the same thing a man would use for like a razor. Like it's a dollar or more for a woman just because it's pink. Yeah, I just find all that. I mean, for some reason, I'm thinking of the um, Saturday Night Live sketch where she like bakes the like Tostitos or whatever for like her hungry guys, and it's just like I don't know this that whole like mentality that like this is for the boys and the women will do this. Like I just mm-hmm. always found that really kind of boring and arbitrary, and just was always like I just want to do what I want to do. And I even though I kind of felt the societal pressure to do certain things, it actually it didn't. Have, ever really make me do them for very long because I was just kind of like, I don't know, I'm just going to do what I like to do. And Well, you guys haven't had a wedding or a baby shower. No. <laughs> I mean, so the uh, wedding... Well, actually, I was meaning to ask, are y'all busy next Wednesday? I'm having a wedding baby shower. <laughs> I didn't throw the bouquet at my wedding, but my husband did. Mm-hmm. I wanted to throw an iTunes gift card because I thought that would be funny. Oh, I'm really disappointed you didn't throw <laughs> iTunes gift cards. And you guys just came to my baby shower. And like the whole thing with baby showers, it's like, oh, just the women come. And I was like, no. Also, my husband is going to be there. He's having this baby too. And I have male friends. Like, why don't they have to suffer along and then go to the baby shower <laughs> along with did. my female friends? And we did. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Um, I brought an alien. <laughs> He did, he did. That's not unique. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, and, like, there's a whole, like, thing about, oh, you have to play these games, and you have to do these things, and this is how this is done, and and I feel like I have been fighting that a lot, where I will pick and choose, like, oh, I really like, I will wear dresses, um, but I also won't only wear dresses, or, like, I'll have a wedding, but I'm going to do it my way, and I'm not going to do the stupid garter belt, and, like, all the things that tradition says you have to do in these situations and i feel like i've also done that for just how i present myself as like a woman where i'm like well some days i feel like wearing lots of makeup and red lips and curvy stuff and the other day i'm just like i'm just gonna wear pajama pants 
Well, and also I want to like point out, and I mean, it's not to like push back against anything that we've said, but it's also like my own understanding of what gender is obviously has like changed so much over time too, to where it's, it's not just the, the luck or like privilege or whatever of being able to live in a different place, but also like the ability to like learn so much more about what gender is and isn't. We've kind of been talking so far in a very binary way about just male and female as if those are two poles but of course it's like the there is no more even like real gender binary anymore. Yeah. Um, and it was so interesting like revisiting these things from kind of that perspective because I've also like and Chris I know I'm sure to an extent you've also like gone through like the ability to kind of like revisit yourself and your own ideas of gender when you live in a place like Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, I think when we grew up, it was very binary that time and also, like, probably where we were all growing up. Um, and, I mean, the entire culture has shifted a lot, and there's a lot of people whose thinking has not shifted along with that. But in general, like, there's at least awareness of the fact that people don't necessarily ascribe to one gender or the other, and gender fluid is a word that people will use. And although there's a lot to do to, like, make that actually, like, sort of a recognized part part of mainstream society, it at least is, like, out there as, like, a lot of people are aware that just categorizing people as A or B is not going to work for everyone. And yeah, like you, I also did one experience, really, in drag when I was Carrie Bradshaw (laughs) uh, (laughs) with three friends for a Sex in the City-themed Halloween thing. You were also the shame lady from Game of Thrones. I didn't really count that as drag, because she's barely a lady. (laughs) She's a mean, (laughs) mean lady. It was sort of an interesting novelty to do once, but it definitely was like, yeah, I never necessarily want to do this again. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Were you wearing heels? I was. They were small, and they still hurt so bad that my feet were numb for an entire month afterwards. Oh, my God. I could feel numbness in them for an entire month. You gotta build those muscles veins. It was awful. Now you know how the other half lives. (laughs) I walked a mile in your shoes. Actually, several miles. So dudes dressing up as ladies for laughs is a pretty popular premise. Popular enough that we've already talked about it twice in two different topics. One was ladybugs. (laughs) It certainly was. Wanted to forget about that. (laughs) In which a teen boy dresses in drag so he can play soccer for his mom's boyfriend. This all checks out. (laughs) To be fair, like the drag part of that movie was like the least problematic thing. And it was actually (laughs) mostly just like the weird Rodney Dangerfield. (laughs) The other one is the cross-dressing comedy The Birdcage that also starred Robin Williams. Although in that movie, Williams was the quote-unquote straight man opposite Nathan Lane's flamboyant queen, who at one point tries to pass as a cisgender woman to fool his son's fiance's conservative parents. And there's a lot going on in the birdcage, like so much that we didn't even really discuss like the aspect of like gender swapping that much. Maybe in part because that character was already so feminine and a drag performer, and so it wasn't like a huge stretch to see him acting that way. In fact, in that movie, like the joke is more that it's really hard for him to play like a convincing straight man. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of why he ends up dressing in drag in the first place. So in addition to Ladybugs, The Birdcage, and our topic today, Mrs. Doubtfire, it's worth noting that a couple of other films from the mid-90s featured men in drag. Uh, 1994's The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and 1995's Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. I don't know why movies about drag performers have to have such long, (laughs) long long titles. Uh, (laughs) 
But those are specifically about drag performers, and what we're looking at today are the um, broader comedies. (laughs) Oh, lordy. (laughs) Well, there's also, I don't know if you'll get into this, but, like, I mean, this has existed probably even before, like, Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. where women weren't allowed to be in the plays, but there were female characters, so men had to play women, and it wasn't even seen as something comedic, like, oh, ho, ho, look at that guy in, in a dress, because, I mean, half of his plays are tragedies. Um, and they're very serious. Mm-hmm. So it was a normal thing to see men dressed up as women and acting like women. Yeah, this goes back to about as long as there have been actors, because mm-hmm. in ancient Greek plays, they had men playing the women's roles. So mm-hmm. there's that. And yeah, Shakespeare famously both had men playing the female parts and then also included like a lot of gender swapping in his actual plays. So that's right. Men of, would yeah. be playing men playing women and in plays like As You Like It and Twelfth Night. A lot of fairy tales and stuff also have gender fluidity and like transformation from like men to women. So it's definitely an an idea that people have found intriguing for a long time. And so naturally it popped up pretty early on in cinema too. Charlie Chaplin dressed as a woman in the short A Woman, <laughs> in which he passes as female to spend more time with his girlfriend whose father disapproves of him. And it was one of three roles where he donned drag. There was also a 1947 film called Boy, What a Girl, centered on Bumpsy, a burlesque performer who catches the eye of his girlfriend's father, who doesn't realize that he's a female impersonator. All I heard was Bumpsy. Yep, that's all, <laughs> all you I need to know. Was Bumpsy. It sounds like a like a mythical creature in like New Jersey or something like the Jersey devil Bumpsy. There are a lot of films around this time actually featuring women dressing as men and it's usually for like a Mulan kind of reason like it's Mm -hmm. more of a like women can't do this so they dress as men and that's kind of what you'll see more in like fairy tales and stuff too. There wasn't a whole lot of men dressing as women until the gold standard for this plot device hit in 1959, which was Some Like It Hot, the movie directed by Billy Wilder, starring Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis, and Marilyn Monroe. I'm engaged. Congratulations. Who's the lucky girl? I am. (laughs) What? Osgood proposed to me. We're planning a June wedding. <laughs> what are you talking about? You can't marry Osgood. You think he's too old for me? Jerry, you can't be serious. Why not? He keeps marrying girls all the time. But you're not a girl, you're a guy. And why would a guy want to marry a guy? Security. In the film, Joe and Jerry are broke and on the run from the mob, so they dress as women named Josephine and Daphne in order to join an all-girl band and escape to Florida. Joe befriends the performer Sugar Kane, but of course, she doesn't know that he's really a man under there. And Jerry has a romance with a, a millionaire that he actually ends up possibly wanting to marry. This was actually based on a 1935 French film called Fanfare of Love. It got mixed reviews at the time, even though it's now a classic. Uh, but it did get yeah, it did get six hmm. Oscar nominations and won one wow. for best costume design. I know it um, because AFI once listed it as like the number one comedy of all time. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was very controversial. The Catholic Legion of Decency called it morally <laughs> objectionable for promoting transvestites and homosexuality. Long before an NC-17 rating, the city of Memphis deemed it adults only and, like, wouldn't <laughs> let children into it. God. The movie was banned in Kansas, like, completely. Um, and it was also not approved by the Hayes Code. But at this point, like, the Hayes Code was kind of losing its power. So they just released it anyway, and it became a huge hit. So it's one of the films that's kind of looked at as, like, the reason the Hayes Code faded. What year did it come out? 
59. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Frank Sinatra was originally attached to Lemon's role, which would have been interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Lemon and Curtis were coached by Barbette, a famous trapeze artist and female impersonator from the 20s and 30s, oh. who at this point was working as a consultant for roles like this. So have you guys seen Some Like It Hot? Not in years, but I remember liking it. Some Like It Hot is one of my favorite comedies of all time. I first saw it in the movie class in high school that I've mentioned on the podcast before, and I most recently saw it earlier this year. I've loved watching it just by myself and laughed along with it, um, and really, really love it Like when it's played in a theater with other people. It's a great crowd movie. I bet, um, yeah. And I still think it's just absolutely hilarious and has... It's so, it's such a, it's a very quotable movie and it has like one of the best closing lines in a movie ever. Yeah. So that line <laughs> specifically is Nobody's perfect. Yes. So it's Jack Lemon. Jack Lemon and the Millionaire. What? And he's like, I can't marry you. I'm a man. He takes off the wig. And then the guy says, Nobody's perfect. And he doesn't care. Yeah. And isn't phase. And that was very controversial at the time. That's, I mean, one of the reasons why it was noted for homosexuality is because like. He wasn't like, ew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ends like that. <laughs> yeah, which would have been a really terrible end. <laughs> <laughs> Throws him off the boat. <laughs> but yeah, I just rewatched this movie. In fact, I don't think I had ever seen it all the way through. I'd seen like large portions of it. But yeah, it's really great. And I was just so curious because I knew we were going to be doing Mrs. Doubtfire and just like going back to this. And, you know, I didn't specifically remember anything problematic from any of these movies, but I thought, you know, this is 1959. There's got to be something in it that like kind of is offensive today or that, you know, is kind of just like a nod to the fact that this was like very taboo back then. And there really isn't. There really isn't. I love rewatching movies about subjects that have been considered taboo, like just to like re-experience that or like see how little or how much has changed about the kind of overall cultural context that I live in. Like rewatching it earlier this year, there's, there's nothing about it that at any point minimizes or calls into question the humanity of any character in it. And at the end of the day, it's just, uh, again, a character drama. <laughs> I think the writing is really spectacular and just absolutely holds up now. Yeah, it's really interesting because we generally think that like things get more progressive and open-minded as you know the years go along but we watched ace ventura <laughs> uh which i think is like the movie that kept coming to mind and Yeesh, i kept like yeah. fearing that that moment was going to come up in one of these movies where one of the many terrible <laughs> moments in that movie is after he discovers that finkel is einhorn, einhorn, einhorn is finkel. Is finkel. <laughs> that einhorn is finkel and meaning that a woman is a man he throws up and like washes his mouth out and it's this entire montage of like how disgusting it is that he could have possibly like kissed a man and it's just you know it really doesn't play very well <laughs> in 2018 and so it's just amazing that this movie didn't have anything even remotely near that like didn't feel the need to kind of like declare like look these characters definitely aren't gay because they're reacting like this whereas like in the 90s ace ventura wasn't the only thing that did this like friends did this a lot you know the guys have to make it super clear that they're not gay because you know that would be just terrible and so no homo <laughs> yeah super homo <laughs> and this movie also introduced a lot of the tropes that i think we see in more of these movies. For one, um, the characters are desperate. You know, they're broken on the run from the mob. So they have, like, a really, like, clear reason to do this. 
a scene where the guy dresses the woman is in bed with the female that tends to come up in a lot of them and the and the female feels totally at ease because it's just another gal yeah and a romance between like the guy in drag and a woman so, like, it really kind of set the template for, I think, a lot of the movies that came later. One of those was 1978's La Caja Fall, which is what The Birdcage was based on. And that was a French film that was a really big hit back in the 70s. And then in 1980, there was Bosom Buddies, <laughs> <laughs> which ran for two seasons with 37 episodes. That's it? Yeah. Wow. It actually wasn't really ever a huge hit. Like, it kind of was a hit at first, but it kind of barely squeaked by even getting a second season. It's just because... Because Tom Hanks was in it, so of course people are like, "Oh, bosom buddies." No, he wasn't. He wasn't famous yet. This was no, but his... I mean, like looking back, oh, looking like, back, like yeah. oh, this was Tom Hanks's first thing, right? Yeah, it was conceived as a buddy comedy along the lines of Laverne and Shirley, and it was pitched as a sophisticated Billy Wilder kind of story. And when ABC asked what they meant by that, they're like, "Oh, you know, like this humor of some like it hot." And ABC decided that they would only <laughs> buy it if the men dressed as women. So that wasn't even part of the premise. Oh, what? What? That was like a studio note. Where, like, the creators did not want that to be, like, the show. Isn't the whole point that they dress, like, women to get into, like, a woman's dorm or something? I I was just going to say, I've not seen Bosom Buddies, but that is the one thing I know about Bosom Buddies. Exactly. I mean, that's what it became. But, like, they wanted to do that, like, in the pilot and then, like, discard it. Um, But ABC was like, no, that's the premise of the show. (laughs) And then in the second season, apparently, they like, revealed it to, like, most of the main characters. And so, like, it lost the tension, and so, like, it became less of a thing in the show. But, I mean, it was still there. But I watched... <laughs> I watched this. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, not all of it. I Once watched, again, you do too much preparation I for did this my, show. Oh, wait till you hear what I did later. Uh, <laughs> you dressed in drag <laughs> for yes, a week. I, did, I, did. I filmed two seasons of a sitcom. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I, I was curious because I'd never seen the show, and it, it does seem like a weird novelty. Just, so it's Tom Hanks is Kip, a.k.a. Buffy. Oh. oh, no. That's why. And Peter Scolari is Henry, a.k.a. Hildegard. Hildegard. So Peter totally Scolari. I thought it was Peter Scolari. Yeah, Holy he shit. is known best to me, at least, as Hannah's dad on Girls. So it was very... Oh, that's who that is. Yeah. Wow. So it was an interesting relic in that way. Um, and yeah, they dress in drag so that they can live in a females-only hotel called the Susan B. Anthony Hotel. <laughs> it's not. It, it, it did not hold up well at all. I have to say, it it wasn't really offensive. It just like wasn't really very funny. But um, it was kind of an interesting <laughs> time capsule to go back to. <laughs> it was a show. Back when Tom Hanks had very curly hair. He did have very curly hair, and it was even curlier when he had a curly wig on. Right. <laughs> like of all these characters like they look pretty bad and (laughs) the fact that they pass in any way is like in most of these it's a little bit you know stretching credibility but that one especially so the same year that bosom buddies went off the air tootsie was released on december 17th 1982 i'm an actress i'm a character actress i can play this part any way you want honey i'm sure that you're a very very good actress it's just that you're a little bit too soft and genteel you're not threatening enough not threatening enough how's this you take your hands off me or i'm gonna meet your balls right through the roof of your mouth is that enough of a threat to start yes i think i know what y'all really want you want some gross caricature of a woman to prove some idiotic point like like power makes women masculine or masculine women are ugly well, shame on the woman that lets you do that, on any woman that lets you do that. And that means you, dear. Miss Marshall, shame on you, you macho shithead. 
It grossed $177.2 million, which is the equivalent of $520 million today. Wow. So Good Lord. That's as much as Rogue One grossed. Wow. So, wow. Uh, hey, Tootsie. Yeah. Can you tell me what Tootsie refers to? I can indeed. Thank you. <laughs> In the movie, Dustin Hoffman is playing uh, an actor named Michael Dorsey, who then is dressed in drag as someone named Dorothy Michaels. But Tootsie refers to, he has one line in the movie where I think he's called Toots or something, or like Babe. And then he like gives this monologue that like, my name's not Tootsie, Toots, like Babe, mm-hmm. like I have a name, my name is Dorothy, call me by my name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's that. And I think in real life, like, Tootsie was, I want to say Dustin Hoffman's dog. <laughs> <laughs> Dustin Hoffman had a connection to a Tootsie. Oh. And it was not a Tootsie Pop, as far as I know. <laughs> okay. Basically, the idea of it is just, like, a kind of condescending nickname for a woman mm-hmm. that's, like, not something you would say it's to like, a man. called the movie that. <laughs> yeah. But, it, like, ironically. <laughs> right. It ended up being the number two movie of 1982 after E.T., and it is still the number two cross-dressing, gender-bending movie of all time. It's directed by Sidney Pollack, and it stars Dustin Hoffman, Jessica Lange, Terry Garr, Gina Davis, and Bill Murray. So a pretty standout cast. Yeah. And it was nominated for nine Oscars, wow. including Best Picture, Actor, Director, and Screenplay. Jessica and, Lange won. Yes, right? she won for Best Supporting Actress. There was a lot of friction between Pollack and Hoffman on the set. Um, Pollack nixed a lot of broader, raunchier comedy, like... Jessica Lange's character Julie oversharing with Dorothy about her flow. There was, so it was a bit like hmm. raunchier, and it was Sidney Pollock who kind of steered it away from that. Duff, Dustin Hoffman found a lot of that stuff funny. Um, Hoffman originally wanted to use a French accent. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Uh, but then went with a more Southern accent. To get it right, he was coached by actress Polly Holiday, who hails from Alabama. Polly Holiday, we recently discussed in Gremlins. She was the old lady. <gasps> oh my god! Basically channeling Margaret Hamilton. So oh, it's that's amazing. A, a weird connection. And in order to get into character, um, Holiday and Dustin Hoffman performed a streetcar named Desire for an audience of one, <laughs> and the audience was Meryl Streep. <laughs> oh, to be in that room, right? <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing. So the premise in this movie is that he's an actor and he's broke, so he dresses in drag to try and get a part on a on a soap opera as sort of a tough-talking administrator. And basically over the course of the movie, he really transforms the show and becomes like a feminist icon for people because the show is kind of known for like the doctors, like leering at all the women and the women are all sluts. And he like just kind of goes off book and will like slap them or, you know, like demand that they respect him on camera. And the overall like arc of Dustin Hoffman's character is that he is kind of a a bit of a womanizer himself and like through being a woman he falls in love with Jessica Lange's character but also like learns to you know just like have a conversation with a woman and you know appreciate what they're going through. And And also learns the ways that men impose expectations on women about how they're supposed to perform Um, and, and similarly to that like how uh, male actors are entitled to like demand submissiveness from female actors, and he pushes back against that as well. Yeah. So, have you guys seen Tootsie and have any? I saw it with thoughts? you guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I remember liking it. It's at for the, the audience; they don't know that. <laughs> that was like honestly, what was it like ten years ago, something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember liking it. I too have seen it with you, <laughs> um, and also I rewatched it a couple days ago uh, in anticipation of the podcast because I also wanted to. Like get get some other 
you know, kind of variations on the same theme, you know, to get some perspective on it. Um, yeah. And I, I loved it back when we watched it and also just really, really enjoyed it this time, too. It's just so fucking well written. Um, I think Sidney Pollack's instinct, as it so often was over the course of his career, was absolutely right. I think steering this particular story away from the broadest comedy notes just really drives home, again, the drama that is going on uh, both within and toward Dustin Hoffman's character. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really excellent movie uh, that I also recommend to anyone if they haven't seen it. Yeah, I bought this on the Criterion Collection several months ago and watched it then, but I, again, rewatched it now just for the podcast because it's a very entertaining movie. And this and some like it hot, actually, I bought both of them and watched them kind of back to back, and it was a real treat to watch both of them. This movie, it's just kind of amazing that this is a big studio movie that, you know, (laughs) was Oscar-nominated and a huge hit. I mean, we've talked about other movies that are kind of like that, like Rain Man Mm 2, another Dustin Hoffman movie, but just, like, the fact that studios were making these movies, and yet it's not, like, a ridiculous comedy. It's just very down-to-earth. And Tootsie is a great female character in a way, but it also has other great female characters. Jessica Lange, you know, she won an Oscar for it. great. Um, Terry Garr is also great. Terry Garr is so wonderful. Yeah. She is, like, unsung in a lot of movies in, like, the 70s and 80s, I think. But she's especially great in those. Yeah, and she was also Oscar-nominated for that role. Not to spoil our next topic, but I think this is probably the most believable transformation of any of these. Um, <laughs> partly because, like, he's not really trying to fool people that he knows, you know? he He's meeting people for the first time, and I kind of buy it. Like, when I see Tootsie, I'm like, yeah, that could be a woman that you might just totally. meet. Which is, I feel like it's a bit of a stretch. I mean, definitely for Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis, and (laughs) I'm sure we'll talk about it in Mrs. Doubtfire, but this is just one of those, like, older movies that just kind of checks all the boxes, and you're like, they don't make them like that anymore. No, they don't. So that movie holds up really well. (laughs) There. Tootsie episode complete. (laughs) And that will bring us to Mrs. Doubtfire, which was released on November 24th, 1993. It was written by Leslie Dixon and Randy Mayhem Singer. It was based on a book called Alias Madame Doubtfire by Anne Fine, which was published in 1987. And it was directed by Chris Columbus. So this was his movie that he did after Home Alone 2 and before Nine Months. The movie stars Robin Williams, Sally Field, Pierce Brosnan, Harvey Firestein, Lisa Jacob, Matthew Lawrence, and Mara Wilson. In it, Robin Williams plays Daniel Hillard, who gets the rug pulled out from under him when his wife announces that she wants to divorce him. His custody is very limited to seeing his kids only, I think, every other weekend. And so his wife is hiring a nanny, so he decides to try and be that nanny and dresses as a woman named Euphigenia Doubtfire. I always liked that first name, Euphigenia. It sounds very anatomical. It really does. <laughs> and I guess I would just say hijinks ensue. I'm sure we'll talk about the specifics. <laughs> Many hijinks do ensue. Can I give you a hand? Oh, no, dear. I don't need a hand. I need a face. A face. Are you sure? Oh, definitely! I'm not a Muslim. Face. Face. Oh, good. Miss Hiller? The water's boiling. I'm sorry to frighten you, dear. I must look like a yeti in this getup. 
It was made for $25 million. Its opening weekend was $20.5 million. How many million of that was the latex budget? (laughs) $24.5 million. (laughs) That's what I figured, but thank you for confirming. Overall, it grossed $219.2 million in the U.S. and $441.3 million worldwide. So, huge hit. I feel like this movie is still making money because I feel like it's (laughs) always on TV still. And especially following Robin Williams' death. Just like everyone's like in a Mrs. Doubtfire mood, like got to watch that again. Yeah, I think that this is like when you mention Robin Williams to people of like who are around our age, I think this is either like the first or second movie that probably oh, for sure. comes up. Yeah, I, I would bet that's true. I bet it's probably like this and Hook, right? Or Aladdin. Yeah. Or Aladdin. Yeah, there are a lot, but I think, I think it's yeah. those three. Or basically. Goodwill Hunting if you're in that kind of... <laughs> no. I, <laughs> but I, it's more Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah, I think you definitely Mrs. Doubtfire, go. I think it's probably like the consensus. Yeah. And this was right after Aladdin came out because yeah. that was 92. So he was already a huge star, but this was kind of cemented him into a huge movie star that you know that he's going to do different voices and -hmm. he's going to be very good at it because he would do that in his stand-up. And forgive me if I'm wrong, if I'm correct, if I'm forgetting anything, but I don't think he did voices too much in his movies. I think there were maybe a couple of roles. Like, I haven't actually seen Good Morning Vietnam, but I feel like maybe that had some of that in maybe. there. Maybe. And I mean, like, different. I don't mean, yeah. like, no, just, like, the Mork voice on Mork and Mindy. I mean, like, di- he's doing pop culture references or he's doing different different characters. No, there was definitely a period um, in the 80s and early 90s when he was kind of more of a dramatic actor or, a, like, semi-comic actor. And he wasn't really, like, the... Br- I mean, he obviously always had a um, his roots in comedy, but, like, for a while he was in you know these kind of dramas like dead poet society and awakenings mm -hmm. and so aladdin and this i would say were the two that kind of like made him a real comedy leading man much more so than a dramatic leading man i think that's how we viewed him for you know the 90s at least also i interned for a company that produced a robin williams comedy like a latter day one father's day mid mid 2000s (laughs) yeah and literally the term that i heard at a certain point was letting robin be robin Mm -hmm. uh this was a movie that had a really shitty script and everyone involved in making it knew it was bad you don't want to say what it is no i don't (laughs) okay it was licensed to wet uh and literally like the plan the official production company plan to make this movie salvageable and hopefully ultimately profitable was just let robin be robin and it'll we'll fix it in the edit we'll put it together in the edit i'm not saying they were wrong because letting robin be robin is very entertaining to watch exactly exactly and i don't want to jump the gun too much but but i do feel like um this was kind of a couple turning points in robin williams career one where he was going into more dramatic roles and roles where he had the chance to be more dramatic, which I definitely think applies to Mrs. Doubtfire and his role in that. Um, but also a turn to a point where studios expected Robin Williams to improv, uh, to uh, to actively fix script problems, or just to try to, you know, kind of... Uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't save know the what movie. the yeah yeah. I don't know what the polite euphemism would be, but save the movie. Yeah, Chris Columbus says that due to Williams' improv, he had PG, PG thirteen, R, and NC seventeen cuts of this film. <laughs> oh my god! Do I want to see the 
need NC-17 version of Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, I definitely do. Right? Oh, my God. I definitely do. He had uh, multiple cameras rolling just to capture the reactions of the other actors because <laughs> Williams is so often doing something completely off the wall and out of script that, like, they couldn't, you know, like, recreate it every time. So they just were filming the actual reactions with a different camera which is not you know something that's normally done on films oh i just i want to see all of that (laughs) i want to see all no and that's the thing like becky you're so right like like robin williams was such an incandescent fucking fireball of energy and humor and but also like really strategic cleverness and wit in a way that hasn't happened in a lot of even stand-up comics before, but especially enough people who then, like, cross over into movie acting. And I do feel like Robin Williams, in a way that a lot of other comedians haven't, was able to transition into being a really, really, really good movie actor. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, Chris Columbus called him the best actor he'd ever worked with. The movie itself um, kind of got uh, mixed reviews. It has a 53 on Metacritic. Uh, Ebert gave it two and a half stars. He said, if this plot sounds to you like an elaborate scheme to create a comic role for an actor in drag, you would not be far off. Robin Williams, who is famous for his ability to do voices and impressions, would have had to be carried away kicking and screaming from the project. But the film is not as amusing as the premise, and there were long stretches when I'd had quite enough of Mrs. Doubtfire. On the other hand is uh, Rita Kempley from the Washington Post. (laughs) Back on the Rita beat! (laughs) who says and you will laugh till your ribs ache not because director chris columbus of the home alone movies has a gift for farce which he does but because williams is to funny what the energizer bunny is to batteries he keeps going and going and going and you can't argue with that no can't rita we can't argue with you we keep trying Mrs. Doubtfire was the number two movie of 1993 after Jurassic Park. So kind of interestingly, like Tootsie was the number two movie hmm. of 82 after E.T. So oh. Spielberg was number one both they years. Did, yeah, like this genre does really well. Yeah. It won one Oscar for makeup, which it deserves. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Robin Williams won his fifth Golden Globe, beating Tom Hanks and Johnny Depp, amongst others. And it also won for Best Comedy at the Golden Globes, beating Sleepless in Seattle. Hmm. So what's your guys' history with uh, both this movie in particular and also Robin Williams in general? I saw this movie in theaters, and I liked it. I don't think there was anything more to that. (laughs) You know, I remember liking it. I don't know if we owned it, but it was on cable all the time, so it didn't matter. I think that I was a huge fan of Hook and Aladdin um, So, and this movie, so I remember having really fond memories of Robin Williams um, when I was younger. I think as an adult, I appreciate him more. Um, I remember just being like, that's Robin Williams, that's his thing. But I think being able to have some hindsight and see his whole career, um, I can realize just like how gifted he was. Um, But I think at the time I was just like, well, he's famous. (laughs) You know, because when we were like, I was like 10 years old when this is Doubtfire came out. So I was pretty young. Um, and I just kind of took it at face value, like, yep, he, that's the guy that does those voices, and he was funny in Aladdin. Yeah. What about you? I definitely saw Mrs. Doubtfire in theaters, uh, and I also, like, rushed to get it on VHS when it came out. Um, I really liked it a lot. I can't say that it was ever, like, one of my favorite movies, you know? It wasn't, like, a super repeat viewing. But I definitely, I, I, I'm sure I saw it probably eight to ten times growing up did not rewatch it at all and then in terms of robin williams i've always been a huge robin williams fan becky i think like hook aladdin 
this. And also, Good Morning Vietnam. And Becky, much like you, kind of watching the trajectory of all of the movies that he was part of, and seeing him in things like Fisher King, and also in The Birdcage. Like, in so many movies, he really did have the chance to just show a huge range as an actor and not just as a comedian. But I also really came to appreciate him as a comedian. And then, as a teenager, becoming a really big fan of stand-up comedy. I came to learn more about how Robin Williams really supported a lot of stand-up comics and a lot of the comics I've liked a lot over the years. So yeah, I just really came to appreciate him in a pretty multifaceted way. And I was, I mean, like everyone was super sad when he died, but I felt like he was a really big presence in comedy and just also as a straight-up actor. Yeah, my history with this movie is very similar to you guys. I know I saw it in theaters, and I know I saw it many more times. I can't remember ever actually owning it, but I know that I like saw it multiple times, like rented it or saw it on TV, whatever. Um, and it was a movie that I liked. It was a perfectly agreeable movie, but it was never like something I was rushing to put on. It was kind of like a good standby, like you know, you can put it on, and like everyone's going to be moderately happy. Whelmed. Everyone will be whelmed. (laughs) Maybe like a tick overwhelmed. Just a tick. As for Robin Williams, I don't know, I kind of found him hit or miss, I think. Because he was in a lot of kind of bad movies in the 90s, as well as a lot of great ones, but... um, Name even one. I defy you. Patch Adams. Fair enough. (laughs) It's a little complicated, and I'm not sure how much... I'm coloring it with knowing how his life ended and that he ended it at his own hand. But I always felt that there was sort of a desperation to him to make people laugh. And I think in a way that's very much the text of like what he was doing is he's like trying everything. Like it's very much like throwing spaghetti at the wall. You know, he'll do any voice and, and some of it's funnier than others. And even in Mrs. Doubtfire, you know, there's like a million takes that were cut out because he tried something and it wasn't as funny as something else. But I feel like I always got this sort of sad sense from him a little bit that just... It seemed like he was working like at 110% all the time. And if somebody needs to do that, that's usually because like they don't want the silence or they don't want to stop and take a break and have to think about anything. They just keep going and going and going and going. Well, and and that's also a classic anxiety depression thing that comes from a fear that you won't love me. So I need to do 110%. I need to do Mm -hmm. so much more, whether that's cocaine or voices or jokes. I feel like there's a part of me that felt that so much like even growing up you know and I've only in my adult life come to learn about Robin Williams struggles with mental illness and with addiction and the ways in which that affected his performance and his very like existence and character as a comedian is very obvious and clear in retrospect it only makes me love him more, you know, but it's also very much the case, and like this may be skipping ahead a bit, but part of the way that I saw this movie now, like going back to it after decades and rewatching it, was like, I like letting Robin be Robin when it's the dramatic parts, when he is being truly vulnerable, when he's not hiding behind a barrage of voices and tics and physically acting out and all that that the the robin i love the most 
in this performance and in this character is the the truly heartfelt one, like as the father figure and also as Mrs. Doubtfire. But the times when he is being his like loving and and kind of most vibrant self. And yeah, like the jokes are hit or miss. But to me, like when he's performing in that kind of, in my estimation, more authentic way, that to me holds up better. I just had a sense, like, even when I was young, that there was something, like, kind of uncool about Robin Williams. Like, that just, like, where we particularly grew up in his career was, like, even Hook, like, was an enjoyable movie, but it wasn't a cool movie. And so, like, this was, like, you know, just, like, a few years before, like, Jim Carrey kind of came out. And Jim Carrey was a very cool, like, thing to like. And I feel like Robin Williams was never, like, cool. Like, there was always something kind of dorky and, like, slightly, like, desperate about him that, I don't know, like, I now, like, looking back, you know, I, I appreciate him a lot and his talent and everything. But at the time, I don't know, it, it felt, like, slightly embarrassing to be, like, a full-on Robin oh, Williams Oh, definitely. Fan. And also, like, at this point in his career he was doing no it wasn't deaf comedy jam it was what was the thing that he did on hbo with uh, billy comedy crystal relief. comedy relief with whoopi with, goldberg and with billy whoopi crystal. goldberg and billy crystal I like he was already no doing what that is really well, yeah it was like a fundraiser comedy yeah. kind of telethon but it was the kind of thing that again i associated with like my parents taste in comedy it didn't even make me think of that until you were talking about that. Just the way that, like, at that kind of point in his own personal, like, career trajectory, like, he was maybe a bit too mainstream, or maybe had been, like, a bit too overexposed, just in being absolutely everywhere. Yeah, he had already had such a long career and was such an established presence that he definitely felt, like, kind of old school in a way when you were a kid. Like, you were just aware that he had been around, like, since basically the 70s and on this old, old sitcom that was, I think, on Nick at Night at the time. So it just kind of felt like... I don't know, in a way he felt like the king of dad jokes. <laughs> exactly. No, I Yeah, I was gonna say, like, he was already jokes, dad absolutely. age yeah. when we were young and just and figuring out who he was. Whereas like somebody like Jim Carrey was probably like in his mid twenties, maybe mm-hmm. early twenties. And it's also really interesting, like the comparison point of Jim Carrey. Because I feel like I kind of my taste went immediately over to Jim Carrey as soon as he was a thing. And was like, oh wait, there's this younger, fresher guy who's like even more elastic and rubbery. Well, and Robin Williams was would do a lot of voices and a lot of them were you know based on like former celebrities or former characters and a lot of those were older like, generation like references that I didn't specifically mm-hmm. know like I might have heard Bugs Bunny do something similar yeah but... like in Aladdin he like almost all of the references are like Ed Sullivan or something yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah like baby boomer like yeah and so it just like really felt like very un of the moment, un edgy. Whereas things that were popular around that time, like Beavis and Butthead and Jim Carrey, were edgy and were like were considered current. He was a bit of a throwback, I think, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So yeah, in in going back to this movie, I didn't really have that much of a preconception. I I knew that I had enjoyed it at the time, but I guess I was curious to kind of see. Like, how much this was a movie for kids and how much this would be entertaining to an adult. Because I don't think I've ever seen it as an adult. And in my mind, it kind of, like, straddled the line. But I was wondering, like, oh, is this just, like, a family movie? Or is this a movie that kind of has something a little bit more to say? So let's answer that question now. (laughs) Uh, What did you guys think of this movie? 
I was really entertained watching this movie. I think that there are certain moments that are pretty problematic. I think in general, this type of movie could not be made today. But watching it, Robin Williams is such a gem that he is just so entertaining to watch, even in the problematic areas. But I can see why people, when he died, were like, I want to watch Mrs. Doubtfire. Like, and why it's probably still like playing every Christmas and Thanksgiving when families are together. Because I think it is a great movie that straddles that line between what kids like and what adults can like. I was just, I was really entertained by it. There were a lot of moments that I still genuinely laughed. I wish that the problematic parts were not so problematic. <laughs> but generally, like, I think it's a movie with a really nice message about relationships and divorce and handling when your parents divorce or split up and what that's like and what that feels like. And I just, I really thought it was still like a pretty good movie. What about you, Seth? I think it's fine. <laughs> I think it's fine. I don't think Chris Columbus has ever directed a really, really good, much less great movie. I just really don't. And it, and it's not one of those things where I have like a personal grudge against him. He didn't, you know, once park in front of you. And nope. <laughs> nope. There have been so many movies throughout my entire life that I've not liked and been like, okay, who's responsible for this? <laughs> and, I can tell you one of those. It's Gremlins. <laughs> and, and like he did the first two Harry Potters. Like, I just think he's not a good director. So this movie is fine. I think when Robin Williams is being the tender heartfelt Robin Williams, the dramatic one, I think it works for me. I like Mara Wilson, the little girl. The world's most precious little girl. Like <laughs> No, like she's absolutely adorable. No, she won me over immediately. And I also love her in Matilda, but that's for another episode. <laughs> you know, there are so many winning things about this movie, but I don't think it's a really good movie and it certainly does not need to be over two hours long <laughs> it didn't feel um, okay it didn't feel this extra movie, long to me oh yeah. this movie drags ass <laughs> drags. i think that was the uh the t- tagline <laughs> was was that a rejected tagline <laughs> i don't think either of you watched the two and a half hour director's cut <laughs> I guess not. What's in the director's this cut? This is not an Aliens movie, so I didn't watch the director's cut. So I did my due diligence with this movie. <laughs> it's actually not a specific director's cut, but I watched like an extra entire half hour of deleted scenes. Oh. That were rightfully cut. I mean, I, this movie does feel a little, I think, padded. Haha. <laughs> it's, yeah. <laughs> but definitely with these scenes. These scenes go on a long time. Wait, did you watch the scenes within the movie it was going? No, or I just was watched like, them okay. afterwards. Okay. But there's a whole basic subplot like the main thrust of the deleted scenes is a subplot with um actress polly holiday okay <laughs> who is the one who coached tootsie's voice and is from grandma everything is coming Wait, back what? yeah yeah Full so there's circle. it's a weird coincidence that the woman who coached tootsie's voice plays the neighbor in this movie so you do see her she's the one who calls the police or she i think she calls miranda in the opening mm-hmm. scene and says like your husband has a zoo over here <laughs> but she's barely in the movie after that but there's a whole plot where he, oh wow him and her are like sparring basically and he's trying to like kill her flowers <laughs> by giving her bad advice as mrs doubtfire ah. but it's at least like 10 minutes of screen time that like didn't really need to be there but suddenly polly holiday is everywhere and i had never heard of her before it's a polly holiday <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Holy holidays. <laughs> anyway, my point is there was a longer version of this movie and Somehow. it did not need to be that long. What did you think of the movie? <laughs> Besides those scenes? Yes. I fall more, I think, in the line 
with Becky, but I'm kind of between you. Like, I also think the movie is fine to pretty good. I don't think it's a great movie, but I was entertained watching it. And I also, like, overall had, like, positive feelings toward a few of the things that the movie does. I think specifically what stood out to me this time, and actually what stood out to me as a kid, is the divorce angle. Because this movie treats divorce as, like, a real... There, okay, there are so many, like, other movies from the 90s that are about divorce in some way, but it's usually about, like, let's get our parents back together. Mm-hmm. And I honestly couldn't remember if this movie was one of those movies or not. Like, if the end, Mrs. Doubtfire, like, won back his mm-hmm. way into Miranda's heart and they ended up getting back together, I wasn't really sure. But I remember this movie feeling, like, at the time, like, one of the most adult dramas I had ever seen. Let's take a vacation together with the kids as a family. Get you away from work. You're a different person. You really are. You're great. Oh, Daniel, our problems would be waiting for us right here when we got back. We'll move. And hopefully our problems won't follow us. Daniel, please don't joke. Okay. We've just grown apart. We're different. We have nothing in common. Oh, sure we do. We love each other. Come on, man. We love each other. Don't we? I want a divorce. It does handle that divorce stuff in such a, I don't know if I want to say heavy-handed, but like a pretty realistic way. Like it really digs into that. And there's actually more of that in the deleted scenes that was cut out. But felt like the stakes were really high at the time because when you're a kid, divorce is like such a Mm -hmm. scary thing. Or at least like if your parents are still married as mine were. like, And in the 90s, I think it was kind of like this unthinkable thing where it was like you knew it was happening, but it felt like kind of a personal calamity that happened to friends. It wasn't necessarily a taboo, but it was kind of an not talked about. Yeah. You know, it wasn't explicitly part of like our dialogue and it wasn't a thing like as kids we never got taught like explicitly like people get divorced and this is what that's like and this is what happens like you learn that from your friends who have parents who get divorced but it's never kind of explicitly handed down to you yeah it always felt like this big tragedy yeah instead of something that like happens and you know it's upsetting but you move on yes and so I liked that this movie dealt with it, and I like appreciate it now that this movie deals with it in a, not all of it is a realistic <laughs> movie, but that aspect of it where two adults have problems and then eventually learn to like reconcile enough to be civilized to each other, but aren't back in love with each other and, you know, find an arrangement that, that works for them. I appreciated that this was like sort of a junior, like Kramer versus Kramer, uh, <laughs> and that, you know, it, it took that seriously, and I think in a way, like, that no other movie did for me at the time like presented that as something that was like overcomable like you could and and also dramatizes the steps that are involved and dramatizes like the way that again life goes on afterward and you have to figure out a new relationship and you have to figure out a new relationship with your own kids i do agree with that and i think even at the time it was a movie that kind of showed me an angle on divorce that i wouldn't have necessarily learned from my friends At the same time, though, I found it difficult to understand why they were ever together to begin with or why they had to be divorcing or breaking up now. Like, I didn't really get 
so much of a sense of what was actually coming between Sally Field and Robin Williams characters. Um, I definitely got it that that he was just been really immature and she always has to be like the parent and he's the friend to their kids. It seems like based on I forgot exactly how many years she said they were together, but it seemed like it was almost like right around the time they had their oldest kid. Mm, So it mm might have been like we're together for the kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that she or he or both of them said like it used to be fun with each other but then like she grew up and he didn't okay no well in that sense i totally get it they have a personal warmth with each other that i don't know to me felt i don't know it made it seem kind of premature unconvincing or something when they first split up but of course as the movie goes on i do think it does kind of structure and dramatize what each of them goes through and i think it does it in a pretty adult way and in a way that doesn't treat the children in a kind of like patronizing way but i did find it somewhat disingenuous hmm. like his performance of that character At the end of it, there is a level of deception in the way that he disguises himself and hides in order (laughs) to be with his children and with his soon-to-be ex-wife. And I wondered, like, if if either of you perceived that or felt that, or if you felt it was, like, overcome by his love, which is clearly abundant and clearly there. Do you mean that they shouldn't have gotten over that? And they should still be angry at him at the end? No. I don't I don't think it's insurmountable. And I do think that that emotional turn is is earned in the movie eventually by by his character, by him. But I don't know. Rewatching it now through all of the prisms of kind of culture that we have, all of the movements and all of the gender politics side of things, to me really the only thing I found kind of problematic was that his performance of Mrs. Doubtfire is a lie. That touches on a lot of things. So, I mean, in general, I think all of these movies have to be looked at as like, these. if this happened to you in real life, these are terrible people. <laughs> right! Like, right. all of them. Tootsie, Some Like It Hot, they are unforgivable. Like, the fact that, like, this is a man <laughs> pretending to be a woman getting in bed with you, that doesn't happen in this movie. But... You know, and, like, you're just, like, you know, like, oh, I'm going to share, like, my most intimate secrets with my favorite girlfriend. And then it turns Mm -hmm. out to be not the fact that it's a man, but that this person is, like, lying to you. And in all of these movies, you know, the people get over it. And that's just something about this premise that you have to buy. Whereas, like, in real life, like, if a father did this, it's like, do not let him around the children ever again. Like, court order, stay away. (laughs) Anyone's children, frankly. absolutely not. So that didn't bother me because I buy into this premise that, yeah. Yeah, you have to, like, just go, it was, like, my best friend's wedding, kind of, for me, is just, like, you're either going with that plot that, like, this person's gonna do horrible things sort of for the right reasons. Well, in seeing this, I went with it. And I did not go with it. Well, I mean... I just, it's one of those movies where, like, as long as it checks out for the character's logic, and I guess it does in this movie, like, I'm fine with it. Even though, do not do this. If you are an actual single father, you know, trying to get back with your kids, don't. (laughs) 
What I like about the movie and his character is that the movie knows that it's his fault, basically, for this divorce and that he's the one that needs to grow. The movie mm-hmm. knows that he's immature by, you know, he has principles where he doesn't want cartoon characters to smoke. Um, so, you know, you, you see that like, oh, he, he is a good father figure, but then he just quits his job. He knows that his wife will have a problem with him getting zoo animals and yet he does it anyway. Like, <laughs> can we talk about the zoo animals for a minute? <laughs> because it's kind of in the movie, it's presented as like, oh, he's fun and she's not fun, but he has like 20 zoo animals, like come into their house and like well, destroy everything. And like a bazillion kids who are like breaking shit. But that's why shit. I think the movie knows that he's a bad parent like he's not right good. but he's like i'd be like i would shoot him for that. i mean i don't know well, like, well she gets at the same time no, like, rich people do that shit though right. they do get like portable petting zoos to come to their houses for parties right well i mean it seems like he's always the one that's in and out of work and she's the one that's getting all right. the money and he's no, just true. spending their money but like he's spending all the money on frivolous immature <laughs> things like zoo animals like they, I, she I, probably I, went into debt after that because no, he had rented but, like 20 but again i i get all of that in a grant all of it but the great sally field just always seems so like i don't know like frustrated but simultaneously gee golly shucks i love you about it she has a hard job in this movie actually like playing angry but also like not coming off as like a naggy bitch which i think would have been probably like a hard role yeah no i think again the great sally field does a great job like this is a really good cast too Wait, I want to go back to Robin Williams. I had more to say. So so the movie knows he's bad, and it's all about him growing as Mrs. Doubtfire, because the first mm-hmm. few, um, when we see him as Mrs. Doubtfire, he's still, like, cutting corners. He's getting the kids to clean. Um, he's uh, faking a nice home-cooked meal by ordering mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But, like, through being Mrs. Doubtfire and going through his experiences, he learns to cook. He learns to, like, be a better dad. He learns to clean and do all the things that was missing when he was married, and he wasn't doing those things as a partner. And that's why I like his character a lot, because he does go through that arc of actually learning to be a good partner, a good father. Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting take on the previous movies that were like this, mainly Some Like It Hot and Tootsie, because those were both focused on also like men becoming better men through being a woman and sort of, you know, seeing the world through those eyes. But instead of in those movies, it was more about like in a romantic way, like this movie took it and it's more about, you know, being a father and like how if you're a father, you should be like able to kind of share the duties, like especially if like your wife is a working woman, like Sally Field is like you should, you know, not just like leave her to do everything and be the fun guy. You should also, you know, step up to that. And it was an interesting twist on like becoming a better man, but in a completely different way than these other movies had done. And he he doesn't, the goal of the movie isn't to be reunited with his wife, it's to be a better man. And he he ends up getting his kids back does it at the end he he is like the after school like yes so yeah so he gets what he wants more time with his kids he gets a better job because he was able to hold down like a serious job and so because of that he's rewarded <laughs> is it a with- serious job <laughs> <laughs> packaging well like a job that you don't like there's no frills but at least you like oh no i meant like then he oh, becomes later. mrs doubtfire like yeah, then be- on tv <laughs> 
Right. I just mean like he held down a job that wasn't fun. It was like packing boxes or something. And because he was able to do that and be responsible, he was rewarded with the opportunity to then turn Mrs. Doubtfire into a job that he actually wants, which is acting. And Becky, I think, kind of amplifying Chris's point, it wasn't just that his responsibility permitted him to be able to grow like that. It was that dressing and performing as a woman and transgressing the kind of gender that he had been assigned and that he had for himself, like, made him able to make that growth, like, to take that step. Like, it was interesting watching this movie, like, now from my own perspective as a gay man, because it feels like Harvey Firestein and the the other gay guy in the movie. <laughs> Does he have a name? I don't know. <laughs> um, unnamed gay too. <laughs> um, I think there are a couple. So Harry Firestone's boyfriend. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. So it, it, his partner, uh, like Robin Williams' brother, is played by Harvey Firestone and is gay and is also the kind of makeup genius who transforms Robin Williams into this this Mrs. Doubtfire. And the Harvey Firestone and the guy are not quite like tokens, but to me they act as these kind of figureheads that give permission for Robin Williams to transgress and transcend and move outside of the kind of box of masculinity. And I feel like that's that reminded me of the birdcage watching it this time around, like how there are these figures who are gay men who kind of act as like gatekeepers almost, you know, and give you the keys to the kingdom to be able to not just get out of the box of masculinity, which can be confining in a lot of ways, but also kind of improve yourself as a person, Becky, exactly like you're talking about and how like in this movie, it it unlocks who he is and it's the best of him. I want to talk about the brother and the brother's boyfriend. I thought that was really interesting because even though part of it is very stereotypical, like, oh, they're gay and they like makeup and wigs and things like that. They're flaming. I thought it was very progressive (laughs) at the time too, because them being gay is kind of incidental. There's nothing about them you know having aids or or being drag queens themselves or um just anything tragic and it wasn't about them being gay and it's not like we had to have rob williams and a whole backstory of like is he okay with them being gay like he just is like it's just like that's my brother not just Uh, that but actually the kids refer to them as i forget what their character names are but like uncle this and aunt that mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and i which made me wish that the kids actually had a scene with them because I would have really liked to see how that relationship played out. And I think there was definitely an opportunity for more. But I agree that, like, for what it is, like, I enjoyed those roles and they didn't feel... Like, yes, they're kind of afterthoughts in a way. They don't have a whole lot to do, but they didn't feel like stereotypes to me. They felt like real people. Yeah. Oh, and I No, and I'm with both of you. I think, I don't think they were incidental, Becky. I think they were instrumental. Like, that's the thing. I think the, the story requires a figure like that, and it requires a character in that position of power who can grant you access to kind of move outside of the the program again like the in terms of talking about like taboo like in terms of moving outside of what society and traditional society expects of you i think that's not what i meant that i meant like it wasn't an issue that they didn't have to come out or right. they, there 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 wasn't any drama or conflict between him being gay and his brother who's not gay i think that's true i think that's true and i think 
again, where I agree with you both is like they're they're kind of in a position of power in this, like where where without them and without their vision and imagination and talent, Robin Williams' character never would have been able to actually complete his journey. Yeah, yeah they feel very enlightened in a way. That yeah, they, absolutely. It's really and, interesting. like he goes to them and like it's kind of a great line, but like, can you make me a woman? Like, and it's, it is. Oh, honey. I like, um, I like that Robin Williams, when he dresses up as a woman and maybe this is, I mean, he's an actor. Um, but also just in general in the movie, uh, he was never like, ew, you know, he's not like, ugh, this, I can't believe I have to dress as a woman. Like he's kind of into it. He's, He's talking like Barbara Streisand. He's like totally into all these roles. He's not like disgusted. Like, I can't believe I have to do this. And that's that's the key word. Like, there is no element of disgust with any of it. I think, and that's like really, that is exceptional. That was astounding to me watching this. Well, basically watching all these movies in aggregate. Like, just, I was sure that one of them was going to have something. I was just like, <laughs> waiting, waiting for it. Waiting. And I thought this was probably maybe the most likely too, because Tootsie and Some Like It Hot are such classics, and this isn't quite on that level as like a... I disagree. It's a classic. <laughs> it's a classic. I'm not saying that it's the best movie ever made. It's a classic though. For what it is, a family maybe a movie. a contemporary classic. It's not, it wasn't, like those were both like Best Picture nominees. Okay, kind okay. Of, like that kind okay. of Contempo classic. Yes. At most. Actually, I think Some Like It Hot was not a Best Picture nominee, but Billy Wilder was directed. Okay. Anyway, okay. just so I don't get any hate mail. Um, I actually did want to talk a little bit more about that because Mrs. Doubtfire does something that Some Like It Hot and Tootsie don't do. Both of those, like kind of notably and to me strangely, like skip over any sort of transformation scene and do big reveals that their character is now dressed as a woman. And they don't go through any of the process of like, how does this person mm-hmm. like choose what they wear or put on the makeup? Tootsie Wait, does that's not, no. Tootsie does No, Tootsie has a scene where she's like, doesn't, isn't there no, a scene it's, where she's... There's, later you see stuff like where she's doing that. But the big reveal is like, he, I forget exactly what it is, but it's like a setup line where he's like, like, you'll never get a job in this town again. And then he's, like, a woman. Like, uh, and they don't show, like, the sort of inception to, like... Interesting. The actual, huh. like, process of doing that, which would obviously be, like, very involved. Well, and I mean, with this, it is so involved. It's, like, a whole sequence. There is, like, that whole transformation. And there are a bunch of uh, abandoned <laughs> <laughs> looks... <laughs> wisely abandoned <laughs> very very wisely I just love that he's like no I'm gonna go with the Barbara Streisand look and just be Barbara Streisand your nanny <laughs> again it was I feel like that was Robin Mrs. Streisand could have been this movie that was Robin Robining but like right. with a oh, $10,000 makeup job that's why I love Ebert's quote that like he would have had to be drug away kicking and screaming <laughs> oh, in yes. this movie because it's like oh, yeah. it's yes like those scenes obviously exist only for Robin Williams like if mm-hmm. there was anyone else playing this role I mean you could see Jim Carrey doing like a version of it but it's basically just like let Robin riff and then there's an even earlier scene where he's with the um like social worker woman yes which is actually like one of my like least favorite parts of this movie because it's just like take after take of him doing oh yeah wild <laughs> impression impression of a hot dog <laughs> They had they found an extra reel of film that day and were like, let's just burn it. 
just go. I have to say they, though, like I like that at least they give they, they he wasn't just like an insurance salesman. Like he's a voiceover yeah. actor. It's weird for a voiceover actor to live in San Francisco, not LA. I was when I was curious about that too, and I was like, yeah. did this originally take place in LA? And no, it originally took place in Chicago, oh, which weird. is also strange. But at least they're like okay, the voiceover he's an actor. heart of America. Yeah, um, but like in that scene, like he does. It's probably at least like twenty different voices, and it's obviously like different takes that they like cut together. Like I don't mm-hmm. think that they intended it to go on that long. <laughs> I'm just like he would have been drug out of that meeting. There's no way that woman would have sat there and listened to all of those impressions. And it's just it's a moment where it's like it's obviously Robin being Robin, and not at all in service really of the story. And that's fine, you know. I mean, it like his voices are funny, but it's just like I wanted to get back to the movie. <laughs> But yeah, I did appreciate that transformation scene when he was doing it actually more in service of the plot and becoming like various women. And it's like, yeah, you wouldn't immediately come up with Mrs. Doubtfire. Like you would try some Mm -hmm. other things and, you know, see how that works. And even behind the scenes, you know, they they do a lot of this. Like there's a footage of like older versions of Tootsie where she's like an older woman, like in a nurse outfit. And she's Hmm. like actually quite scary <laughs> and you're like oh they had to but that was a real test that they were doing to like see like can Dustin Hoffman play a woman oh. and so it like there is a whole process to yeah. just discovering what this woman is going to be like yeah. and I like that that was reflected here should we just talk about the bad parts? <laughs> I, 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 I was literally about to be like, can we talk about the problematic aspects yeah, I mean, please? Okay let's just start with it this one. Time. Let's start with this one. I like Okay, there's a scene where he wants to make sure that she gets a lot of bad candidates. Um, yes. So, so, he, so it's an opportunity yes. for for Robin Williams to do more voices. Um, and some of them are funny. I like when he's, I am Job. <laughs> and he just I, doesn't speak English. I, and he's just... I am Job. I am Job. Um, and, she, you know, she hangs up, or I don't know what she does. But one of them does not hold up when he t- says that uh, he, he used to, he as a woman, he's presenting as a woman, but he used to be a man. And I, then... I don't work with the males because <laughs> I used to be one. Then she hangs up. That's problematic for two reasons. One is that he knew that would be that something she didn't want to hear and that she doesn't want to hear it and hangs up. <laughs> and she makes like a weird face too. Yeah. Where it's like disgusted. Yeah. yeah. That didn't really bother me, to be honest. Like I, I noticed it when I was watching it, but I think it was because he was so over the top in the delivery that it's just like, if someone said that on the phone in that way, it would be weird. You know, like it wasn't like he was it's dramatically a, saying like, oh yeah, by the way, right. I'm trans. And it, then she's like, ew. It's a line that would be cut in a script yeah, today. Yeah. And then also, like, the he-she part with Matthew Lawrence. Yes. When he discovers, not that his father is Mrs. Doubtfire, that he discovers Mrs. Doubtfire's peeing standing up. And I guess he sees her penis. And he, and that Which whole... Which is a whole diff... Actually, like, really problematic in a whole different <laughs> way. But okay. Yeah, and just the way that he, like, is completely shocked, but then runs into his sister's room and's like, he's a he-she. And, like, so... It's it's just so over the top. Like, oh my god, like, we have, like, a sex offender in our, in our house that's how, oh my god, we, we're in danger. Lady, come on. We gotta call the cops. We gotta yes. dial 911 Why? now. Why? Well, Mrs. Doubtfire, he's a she, he's a she, she he's a she, she. What? Uh, uh. He's half man, half woman. What? Yes, I what? swear. Lady, what? What? No, just calm down. Freeze. Just relax, please. He's gonna get it. In the balls. Yeah. She's got him. She's got everything. All right, listen to me. I'm not who you think I am. Yeah, no shit. Watch your mouth, young man. Oh, my God. 
dead? Yeah, that scene struck me more. It made me uncomfortable. It made me feel a little bit Ace Ventura-ish. Yeah. Just a little. Not full Ace Ventura. On the other hand, like, it felt like a very true reaction for a teenage boy to have. This almost gets into, like, Ladybug's territory with, like, (laughs) how inappropriate it is to, like, subject a child (laughs) to, like... Having a nanny who turns out to be your dad in drag. <laughs> like, that's not really an okay thing to do to a child. Uh, well, he didn't think he'd ever get caught. Well, right? Yeah. Well, if you're, you're not sure going to get fine. caught, then it's okay to do it. That's the lesson of Mrs. Doubtfire. The crime is being caught. Um, so, like, I did find that as, like, something that definitely felt like a 90s thing like someone has to react negatively to this and kind of be like creeped out by it but then the sister like is also like picks up something to like to protect her and her brother when he comes in well again it's like he's deceiving them like i don't know okay but there were a couple other problematic things and that's before we even get to the soundtrack um (laughs) it's are you gonna rail against aerosmith again (laughs) it is It is obvious, of course, and like you were saying with Matthew Lawrence's character, like, there is a valid dramatic storytelling reason to do it this way. But there's a line that Robin Williams' character delivers as Mrs. Doubtfire to Sally Field's character, where he's like, once the husband of your children is no longer in the picture, basically, like, the only possible future for a woman is lifelong celibacy. Well, you know why he's saying that, is so that she won't date anyone else. I know, I know, (laughs) and it's totally valid. But again, it was like, like I was saying earlier, like this time around, the kind of deceptive nature of it and how disingenuous he was, at least initially, kind of leapt out to me because it. I mean, that was just him being like, there's two things going on here. He he wants to be close to his kids and he also is jealous that his wife is dating. Right. No, totally. And it's, it, that's actually, like, some of the funniest stuff in the movie, I think, is this jealousy over Pierce Brosnan yeah. and kind of, like, the pettiness that he has where he'll just, like... Yeah, he's ...get petty. in these, like, very, like, kind of, like, dry British, like, jabs that still seem like something a nice old lady would say. Yeah. Yeah, um, that wasn't a problem for me, personally. That's fair I mean, I think it gets to the fact that, like... Again, like, this is a despicable thing to do <laughs> to your family. But we're in the world of the movie, Chris. Right. So, it, 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 it's a weird thing. It's like, no, you should never forgive anyone who does this. Like, it is so creepy <laughs> to basically pretend to be someone else that your family, like, to deceive your family. Like, <laughs> deceiving people according to all these movies, is a great way to fall in love and reconcile with people. (laughs) And get everything you want. (laughs) It will not work out this way in real life. (laughs) No, it's not going to work out this well. The only other problematic thing that I perceived was that I only even noticed in retrospect, in my opinion, a missed opportunity, is that at the very end of the movie, Mrs. Doubtfire gets her own show. And so, like, Robin Williams, you know, fulfills his desire to want to be a successful actor. Which, I don't mean to interrupt. Well, yes, I do. You do. (laughs) Don't lie. (laughs) What a weird fucking show for kids. It's a real weird show. That's not that weird. It's like Mr. Rogers. But, like, Julia Child, Mr. Rogers? No. I think it's just like a Mr. Rogers, like, everything's nice, we're going to learn to share and be kind. So now he's going like, to genuinely deceive all of America? He's not deceiving. I think people... <laughs> I think it's known <laughs> the actor is... But he's not trying to... I don't even know. <laughs> it's, it seems like a weird 
thing to put on TV. Anyway. At the end, when you are learning that Mrs. Doubtfire has the show, and also when the the family, when his family is learning that he now has a show, uh, they, like, overhear it playing on a TV in the other room and run to go see. And so the movie ends with Mrs. Doubtfire talking about how some families have one mommy, some families have one daddy, or two families. And Mrs. Doubtfire then basically goes on to list every single heterosexual family structure that exists. One daddy, two dad, like, two families, but never, like, two daddies or two mommies. And, and again, it was, like, a thing that I only thought about with this amount of hindsight, which is literally, like, a couple decades. Um, but I kind of wish that they had made that character a bit more... Uh, vocal and expansive. I did notice that just because it seemed like it was really setting up the line, like some character or some people have two daddies or two mommies. And I was they just waiting didn't for go there. I was just waiting yeah. for it. What and was it then? It was just some have a mom and dad, some have a mom and some have a dad? Exactly. And was some it, have divorce. I forget exactly how they say it, but some have divorced parents and some have like a stepmom and a stepdad. It was, that. Oh, it was okay. in the yeah. context of like, okay. you know, like families are yeah. produced by divorce as I, well as marriage. I think if this happened today, it, it 100% would. Uh, yeah, no, definitely. Okay, can we talk about the soundtrack now? Can we talk about the soundtrack? <laughs> okay, what about, what? which part? Mm-hmm. It's just like the most on-the-nose slash punny soundtrack ever. Okay, I, I can remember Luck Be a Lady, and then I can remember Dude Looks Like a Lady. Okay, you seem to have forgotten oh, I uh, the scene where Robin Williams changes in the men's room, and they soundtrack it with Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. Okay. Which, of course, has the line, ain't no drag, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. Oh, that seems appropriate for this movie. <laughs> no, like, I just want to call it out, because it's, it's kind of great. Like, I, <laughs> wait, is this a problem or is this good? <laughs> I don't know. It's not a problem at all. It's great because they're. <laughs> I thought you had a problem with No, I, I feel like the soundtrack choices are almost as broad as the comedy yeah, is, it's but like. Perfect. Or if not broader. Yeah. Yeah, I specifically looked up the lyrics to Dude Looks Like a Lady because I was like, is that a problematic song? I don't actually know. I, the only part of it I really know is. Dude looks like a lady. It's a very weird song, <laughs> it actually. Is a yeah, is it weird? A, is it pro gender fluidity? Kind of. <laughs> I feel like it's about Steven Tyler mistaking a man for a woman and like being like she's hot, but like finding out like mid sex and going along with it anyway. <laughs> like yeah. that seems to be the yeah, text yeah. of the song. That seems pro. Yes. I thought you had more problematic things to talk about. That's why I was confused. Oh, no. <laughs> I would like to read the lyrics from To the Like a Lady. We're going to put a clip in, too, obviously. Because this also has all these weird, like, backward recorded wow. clips of vocals wow. and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a weird song. I mean, I, I wasn't missing anything then. That's what I thought it was. <laughs> no, I think, like, of all the movies, I feel like this one is, like, the most, like, I think they'd figure it out. <laughs> Like, it is your husband and your father. Right. It's a very good makeup job. It is. It's very good, but also. (laughs) True. But also, like, Uncanny Valley, like, this in the Mission Impossible Ethan Hunt face changing machine. I'm always like, oh, they would figure it out eventually. You know what? It's funny that you bring that up because I really. I, I I didn't not like looking at Mrs. Doubtfire. Like I thought she she was a character. Like like they did a great makeup but, job. But you have to do a double negative to get there, Becky. 
No, I thought it was fine looking. <laughs> Look, Robin Williams is wearing so much makeup and like basically a mask, and you'd think that would be grosser to look at him. But I think it's like it's a pleasant looking lady. Fine, I like look. <laughs> I feel like saying I like looking at Mrs. Doubtfire is you weird. You can just say that up front. Dude you looks like a that. pleasant looking lady. <laughs> <laughs> they that did. A, the it's a compliment. Demo. They did a great job making it, it an appealing character to look at. Yes, the. I mean, because especially because you see all the versions that were nixed, which were <laughs> not appealing to look at. I think the makeup is mostly convincing on its own. Like, I could believe that this is a woman. It still doesn't quite get me to, you could believe that this is not your father. <laughs> 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 but okay, this movie also like doesn't have really any sexuality, unlike some like it hot and Tootsie, which both have like romances between uh, the guy dressed as a woman and an actual woman, which I think is maybe a sign of the times, like that it was just. I mean, she's an older like British nanny. It's not. There's exactly a little the bit of it in there. The bus yeah. driver. Yeah, and that actually, there's more of that in the the director's cut. Or the <laughs> deleted scenes, which I am refashioning into an actual cut of the movie, it is three and a half hours long. Have is ever, it on Vimeo? Have you ever seen the recut trailer of Mrs. Doubtfire? Like that, but it's a thriller. I think I have, but I had forgotten about it until just now. And we're going to have to link to that. Yes, because it, yes, it is very disturbing. <laughs> But I like that there wasn't a scene with, like, Mrs. Doubtfire and Miranda in bed, because all the other movies have right. a oh, bed scene. Oh, yeah, okay. And at least they didn't really go there. They weren't like, let's go skinny dipping <laughs> Yeah. You guys, are we going to bring up the run by fruiting at all? <laughs> yes, we are. I was waiting for you, Seth. It is the most iconic. <laughs> it's the line that defined a generation. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was drive-by fruiting until I watched the movie. Again. I thought I wrote it down as drive-by fruiting yeah. before I rewatched it, and then I was like, "Oh, it never was that." People change, Ron. I'm pushing forty. I don't want to spend the rest of my life by myself. She's got an awful lot of baggage, though. Three kids, three terrific kids, and I'm crazy about them, especially that little Natalie. Look at her. She needs a sweet eye. God knows. They need some kind of stable father figure in their life right now. Thanks, Todd. Well, what about their real father? Yeah. What can I say, Ron? The guy's a loser. I'll see you. Loser. Yeah. Oh, sir. I saw it. Some angry member of the kitchen staff. Did you not tip them? Oh, the terrorists, they ran that way. It was a run by fruiting. I'll get them, sir. Don't worry. Drive-by shooting is the joke. But then they change it to run-by Never even knew that was the joke that they're aiming really? for. It was the drive-by yeah, shooting. Yeah, because it's like two jokes <laughs> in one. It's like, yeah. it's not just like run-by shooting or drive-by fruiting. It's run-by fruiting. <laughs> it, like an difficult. onion, Becky. It has layers. <laughs> yep. I wanted to sing the praises of a few people. I actually really liked the uh, girl who played the daughter, who isn't really that notable, but Lisa Jacob. I just thought she was like a pretty appealing actress. Yeah. Like She's she, a Gabby Hoffman type. She was very she much was a, Gabby a Gabby Hoffman type. <laughs> they couldn't get Gabby. <laughs> yeah. Anne Haney, who plays Mrs. Selner, I thought is... Who's is that, that the social, uh, worker? social worker? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. the scene! We gotta the talk scene. about the yes, scene! Yes, yes. Well, scene. I was gonna ask you guys, like, what's your favorite 
set piece or scene from Oh, it's that scene where he has to have a social worker come, but he's dressed as Mrs. Doubtfire and he runs into her and like then he has to be like him and Mrs. Doubtfire at the same time. I wrote down in my notes that like the comedic timing in that scene is amazing and not just Robin Williams' physicality, but the screenplay has all of these puns about like dressing up as a woman, like baked into the conversation he's having in the other room with the woman. Yeah, like, two big developments have happened. <laughs> yeah. like, I've gone through a lot of changes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I love that scene and it, it ends with like him putting the face in the cake and hello and mm-hmm. I, I, I love <laughs> that the sequence. most iconic yeah. moment of this. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The scene yeah. in the restaurant is another, I think, really oh. good set piece. Yeah. Like, it's actually quite long <laughs> when I was rewatching it. I feel like it's the whole entire, like, last half hour of the movie. But, like, he also has to be both himself and Mrs. Doubtfire. And so there's a lot of, like, running back and forth to the bathroom. and It's very iconic. Like, yeah. I'll be right back. And then he changes, goes and to the And that's also table. the kind of thing that's been done as a storytelling device a ton of times, like, both in sitcoms and in movies. Like, especially in the context of, like, the man who's dating two or three women at once. Mm-hmm. And so, like, commits to dates mm-hmm. with multiple ladies at yeah. the same place and has to, like, run and change in the bathroom. Um, but with this, I, I, I do think it works really well like there are a lot of those sequences that really are winning i I, yeah if we're gonna talk about in real life though that like he's an awful person is that he nearly kills pierce brosnan (laughs) that is true there's that too there's that too Yeah, I like how that's kind of just dismissed because like then he's like well i guess i better save him now that i've murdered him (laughs) does this movie pass the bechdel test (laughs) um do do the sisters talk to each other about someone other than their dad? Probably not. No, uh, the reason I asked that is not just to like bring that up, but to say, I think one of the reasons I really like all of these movies is that even though the women are technically men, they all take the time to have scenes of women talking to each other about just like their emotions. Like they have Miranda and Mrs. Doubtfire talking about like what went wrong in their marriage. Tootsie has like him and Jessica Lang talking about, you know, just like dating and how hard it is to be like a woman in the 80s. And even though like obviously there's a subtext to this, which is like, oh, it's supposed to be kind of funny because that's not actually a woman. Like it's the rare movie that actually has like two women talking to each other about like just like how they feel about things. And I feel like that's not a scene that would have made it into this movie if the premise were different. Like, it's a little bit sad that it has to have, like, that subtext there, but I appreciated, like, oh, like, I I get to know Miranda better in this movie than I would in most other movies, because she wouldn't get to have the scene, like, talking to Mrs. Doubtfire about how she feels about her marriage. Again, I feel like, as with the gay characters in these movies, that there is a kind of gateway aspect to them, where, like, a story like this, where there's a gender swap in the context of drag rather than in the context of, like, sexuality or something like that, it gives a kind of social sanction to be able to both, like, transgress gender norms, but also for, like, women in a patriarchal society to be able to express themselves and relate to each other. There's an aspect, it's interesting because it's like, I'm I'm not sure a movie like this would get made anymore. Definitely not in exactly the same way, you know? Um, but there's a way in which these movies are kind of avenues to have female roles and female characters that are more thoughtful than 
might otherwise be even in a kind of like dramatic movie like this. Yeah, I think you end up like missing the female characters in these movies once like Tootsie and Mrs. Doubtfire are sort of unmasked. Like I think in both movies, someone actually says like, I miss that person. But I think as the audience, you kind of do too. And it's like almost a disappointment to see like just the male character again. And at least Mrs. Doubtfire kind of like lets her live on because she ends up being on a TV show that her kids can watch. But. Well, and it's and it's also interesting because the moment that they are unmasked and that the kind of reveal is done, the movies always become about them again and become specifically about the man again and what he's going after and what he wants and needs. And then, like, even Sally Field is kind of, like, uh, relegated to the, to the background a bit. Yeah, I mean, they have that scene where, like, he has to basically appeal to her. Like, she forgives him real fast compared to... <laughs> Like, considering what he's done. Yeah. Like, she's like, "Eh, you know, come on, come on over and... and, Come on over, baby. Yeah. That's a different episode. (laughs) Although, I would like to see Sally Field's version of that. (laughs) Uh, Her reaction when... Mrs. Doubtfire is unmasked is terrific. Um, I already know what it is. I can remember it even before I watched it this last time. I have to go. I have to go. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. She just repeats everything twice. Mm-hmm. The whole time? The whole time? <laughs> I did like that one. I so did great. really so like great. that one. I did. Daddy? Yeah, honey. It's me. Birthday. Daniel. Daniel. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. The whole time, the whole time you would the whole time. Oh, I'm I'm sorry, Miranda. Uh, Please. Don't talk to me. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. I have to go. We have to leave now. I have to leave. We have to leave now. I have to go. We're going. Again, she's the great Sally Field. Like, she is really great. She's coming straight off of it, playing sassy and Homeward Bound. So <laughs> it was a one-two punch from Sally yeah, Field. Her two greatest roles. You're leaving out Steel Magnolias, sir. Nope, nope. sir. It's sassy. <laughs> sassy beats it. That will bring us to our next segment on Big Mama's House. <laughs> God, I will only talk about two. Thank you. Um, no, but we won't talk about this for very long. But I did want to mention it because it came out June 2nd, 2000. It made $174 million worldwide. So it was another oh, big hit really? in, this, <laughs> wow. in this genre. Starring the surprisingly, like, well-calibered cast of Martin Lawrence, Nia Long, Terrence Howard, Anthony Anderson, what? Octavia Spencer, Cedric the Entertainer, and Paul Giamatti. <laughs> okay. This is a surprisingly, like, legit cast for... <laughs> Big Mama's House. Yeah. Unlike Tootsie and Mrs. Doubtfire and Some Like It Hot, it was not nominated for any Oscars. (laughs) I watched this again. Oh, Chris. Again? (laughs) Why did I watch this again? Because I own it on DVD. Chris, we're learning things. We are learning things about you. There's not that much to say about it. It's not terrible. It's definitely not as good as any of these other movies. It's not terrible. I mean, it spawned two sequels, which probably are terrible. What? Wait, but this is like in the vein of like Hairspray, right? Where like he's supposed to be a woman? No, it's exactly like these ones where he's an FBI agent. Oh, I'm glad I didn't know that. Yeah. (laughs) So Big Mama is a real person, unlike 
Tootsie and Mrs. Doubtfire, who are invented by the characters. It's a documentary? He's playing a real person. <laughs> okay. Who is um, a suspected criminal's basically grandmother. So he dresses as the grandmother trying to get, like, okay. information about where, like, some money from a bank robbery is. But, like, falls in love with that girl. So it's it's a little more problematic <laughs> in that, like, he's, like, hot for someone who thinks she's his grandma. <laughs> yeah. And there yeah. is, again, like, another bed sequence where they're, like, cuddling oh, up in bed. and. Okay, filmmakers out there, women don't necessarily do this with all their friends. No? <laughs> no. What about their grandma? You I don't would say, ever, like, like, maybe your if you're, like, a teenager and you're just, like, you have to share a bed because it's a sleepover, like, maybe you'd cuddle up. That's it. <laughs> well... Judging by these movies, it happens all of the time for adults. So, um, so are we going to talk about the next most important entry in the series, White Chicks? <laughs> oh no! Next is uh, 2002's Sorority Boys. Oh god! <laughs> never oh, ends. No. It never ends. Then we have White Chicks, uh, starring the Wayne's Brothers. We also have Tyler Perry as Medea. But again, he's supposed to be a that woman. That is true. Yes. Medea. Because we forgot about... We forgot, <laughs> Who cares? We forgot yes. back in the day about Hairspray of, like, Divine um, playing an yes. actual woman. He wasn't... It was more, I'm in drag, I'm a woman, rather than, I'm a man, I have to be in disguise. Well, but see, another difference there is that Divine was always in drag. Like... Divine was only Divine. Right. But then there was the Hairspray musical that came out where John Travolta plays a woman. But that was a remake of the first movie. Yes, I'm just saying that these are other versions of men dressing up as women. Yeah, there's basically two versions. One is which, like, in the story, the man is dressing as a woman. And one is which, like, the audience knows that it's a man dressed as a woman. But it's actually, like, playing a woman. So... That's like Eddie Murphy and Norbit, I think, was that. Yeah. No one saw Nor- Norbit, so <laughs> no. I don't know. I mean, what are, where does, like, Hedwig fall? Like, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. That's a whole different... Yeah. That's a whole different ball of wax. Yeah. No, that's a, whole, uh, that's a whole different thing, because Hedwig is not a straight man. Right. And also n- not playing a character that they are not playing at all other times. Yeah. I think I'm trying to think of, like movies where women dressed as men in any respect and i'm thinking of like boys don't cry but that was like about somebody being like trans well there's uh, shakespeare in love and there's shakespeare in love victor victoria okay that's true there's uh, actually a lot more older movies that actually went there because it's not as problematic and again for women to do oh, it oh what what's the one albert knobs yes yeah. um well but chris i think what you were talking about earlier in terms of like time being a flat circle where like we we like <laughs> to I? we like to have this <laughs> illusion of everything always being like forward progress but a lot of times we do kind of double back and i do think there is a way in which the kind of idea of transgressing gender norms is more acceptable when it's a man doing it, no matter whether that man is straight or not. And Really? I would kind of say the opposite. Wait, I, what? That, wi- that it's okay when women are doing it, because 
like women are typically seen like for women it's a um empowering move i guess because Mm -hmm. they get to be men who are supposedly more powerful or we're like restricted to wear dresses so when we don't wear dresses it's seen as like a power yeah and whereas with men it's like it's like ooh, they have to like deign to dress as a woman like it's embarrassing that they would possibly Mm -hmm. do this and that like maybe it's a more absurd premise so it's that's why like there's so many of these comedies but that like it's also like tinged with all this like homosexuality like and like just like things that make people like uncomfortable because of gender norms whereas like a woman can dress as a man and like i feel like there's not as much like stigma there because it's like it doesn't it doesn't feel as like as sexual of a thing or as oh it's definitely well and it's definitely kind of desexualized and you're always kind of reminded in these movies at one level or another that they're not actually gay men. Mm-hmm. This is just something that bothers me just with this whole thing in general, not like a Mrs. Doubtfire thing, but just it's like seen as silly to be a woman. So if a man dares to dress like one, then they're seen as silly and not serious and flamboyant or less than like mm-hmm. how, how dare they want to dress as somebody like that like it's just it's bothersome that and it's been like you know the history of like men dressing up as women and people finding it funny because it's funny to be a woman mm-hmm. this still exists today but i think in much less because i think these kinds of movies can't really exist anymore because we have shows like transparent about like the trans experience or we have was that show Pose and like like trans characters are becoming actual characters on TV series like they, you're hearing their stories and slowly I think that if there, it, it seems like uh, a couple of years ago there was a TV show called Working It I think it was called Work It 2012 Work it. I, have, I, have, I have facts on this oh, about no. about two men that dresses women to get jobs as like pharmaceutical reps like how many episodes did that last I, it ran from January 3rd to January 10th <laughs> 2012 <laughs> Thank you for having those stats. <laughs> On ABC, uh, yeah. <laughs> Negative two episodes. Yeah. Like the fact that that even existed, okay. I remember back in the time, to- back in 2012, <laughs> I remember being like, what fucking year do they think this is? It was the nail in the coffin, I think, of this whole genre. Because yeah. it was just like, so a year before that, there was Adam Sandler in Jack and Joe. Oh, God. Oh, Which fuck. was not well received either. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. And then, so I just think you can kind of see the progression. Like, obviously, it was diminishing returns, basically, on this premise. Like, I think some like it hot and tootsie are, like, a shade better than Mrs. Doubtfire, which is still a lot better than Big Mama's House, Sorority Boys, and all that. And then by this point, it was just like, what are you even doing? Yeah, like, like, you can't do this anymore. Whenever I see um, men or women dressed as the opposite sex, it's about some sort of, like, identity story, like Albert Knobs or um, the Danish girl um, with mm-hmm. What's-His-Face. that was, He was nominated for an Oscar. You know, mm-hmm. the Oscar Eddie winner. Redmayne. Eddie Redmayne. Um, it seems to always be like, <laughs> now it's some, some some something about your identity if you're dressing as the opposite gender. It's not some hijinks comedy. And also, again, like kind of zooming out to the wider quote-unquote cultural conversation, performance of drag and crossing the like gender border in terms of the, the costume you wear has been separated out from sexuality mm-hmm. in a way that like, like, 
you know, being a transvestite is not the same thing as being a transsexual and, and, or transgender. And there's like a wider understanding of what all of those concepts mean and the fact that they're separate. And I think in movies like this, they are inevitably kind of conflated together in one way or another in a way that they wouldn't be now. So I do kind of agree that movies like this wouldn't exactly exist now. Maybe. I mean, I don't disagree with you, but I also think like the fact that all three of these movies that are good examples of this are so unproblematic makes me feel like maybe you can do this. Like maybe there is. Like I think all of these movies have something interesting to say about gender. And even though I think at this time I would not like put my money behind a movie like this because I think, I mean, there's all these controversies about like Scarlett Johansson playing a trans character and she had to back out of the role. And I, you know, anytime basically a straight actor is cast as a trans person, like it's now seen as problematic and taking roles away from actual trans people. I mean, even Jeffrey Tambor has gotten some of that for Transparent. In Dallas Buyers Club, Jared Leto won the Oscar for playing a trans person, but he won an Oscar, but there was still a lot of controversy. Yeah, I think now is not a good time to do this kind of thing, but I don't necessarily think that, like, there isn't a way to do something like this. I think it would definitely be more progressive if you were to do it now in a good way but i think there's still maybe something to mine out of seeing what it's like for you know a straight man to dress as a woman and just experience life through those eyes and and maybe become a better person through you know kind of being the other gender and seeing just what life is like for that person absolutely and i think this is one of those few scenarios in which it seems like the moment is, if not too sensitive, then at least like not nuanced enough to adequately understand how culture like conveys human experiences imperfectly. Like representation is always a good thing, but there's there is like an outrage culture, and I think that's another part of the reason why studios wouldn't make movies like this anymore at all. To even deal with these subjects, I think invites a level of controversy and cultural like uproar or whatever that would not have ever existed in a time before this. Um but I also agree, Chris, that like there is a a way to do something like this um, in a way that kind of like the best of these movies um, advances not just like our our understanding of what like male characters are or are supposed to be, but also like what female characters can be and like add a lot of depth and complexity to that. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think people are right to be sort of outraged at the lack of representation in film today. But I also kind of hope that there's a day where we can not worry about it and a man can play a trans person or a woman can play a trans person or a trans person can play a trans person or a trans person can play a man. I'm not going to go through all the iterations, <laughs> but where it's just like actors are actors and they play different things that are not really them. Like, I hope we get there, but I understand why right now there's sort of a need for more like authentic representation. And that's all the authentic representation we have for today's episode of When We Were Young. On the next episode... Hide your wife, hide your kids, and hide your bunnies. (laughs) Glenn Close, Sharon Stone, and Demi Moore are all femme fatales lusting for Michael Douglas. 
Our extra sexy Valentine's Day episode looks back at Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct, and Disclosure to see if we can figure out what it is about Michael Douglas that makes bitches go crazy. Happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) Until we disclose our basic attractions, the When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. Please find us on all the social medias and leave us a review of five stars or more. Subscribe to us on iTunes as well. I am Seth Pearson. I've been your mother this whole time. And I am Job. <laughs> <laughs>